Welcome back to another episode of the Been There, Read That podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Batty, and as always, this program is brought to you by ChristianResearcher.com. In the studio today, we have a special guest with us in Clint de France, who is a faithful gospel preacher. I'm very thankful to have him as a brother in Christ and as a fellow gospel preacher. And he has also undertaken a very new and exciting uh, endeavor in his preaching field. And I want to give you the floor, Clint, to introduce yourself and kind of t- tell us about what you have on the works right now. Well, for those who aren't familiar with me, my name is Clint DeFrance, as has been mentioned. I work with the 11th Street Church of Christ in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I've been preaching the gospel full-time now for about 11, uh, 12 years. I guess this would be my 12th year since I did this as a full-time occupation. Just this year, I've finally put into practice something I've been wanting to do for a long time, which is to make a podcast. I've always allowed the the daunting task of figuring out the logistics of it to keep me away. But in reality, I think it was that I was afraid of the workload commitment. And uh, I want to commend you, Nathan, because uh, you put out quality material on a regular basis. And that's very difficult for those who've never tried it, they just don't realize what it takes. And so there have been times in my life when I felt the need to do it, but at that particular season, I tend to have an overloaded plate regardless. And I just knew that if I began to build, I would be unable to finish. So I avoided it until now. Uh, Circumstances in my life have made it possible for me now to really put myself into this, and I think that I can continue and uh, not lose heart and be able to stay ahead of the material. Good. Well, the program is called Verse by Verse. And it's available on all your major podcast platforms. And I appreciate you doing that. You're working through the book of Acts right now, piece at a time. I commend you in that, and I want to recommend our listening audience to definitely go over and check out Verse by Verse with Clint DeFrance and check it out on a weekly basis. To your point about uploading new content, that is a big commitment. And for what it's worth, my advice would be record when the spirit moves you, so to speak. (laughs) Whenever you get the urge to record, record because there's going to be times when you don't feel like recording or it's impossible to record. And this past fall was crazy difficult time for me in the work here in Indianapolis. And so it made it really difficult to record on occasions, though I may have wanted to. I definitely understand some of the challenges coming with it, but I appreciate you undertaking this task and putting out some good stuff. I've really enjoyed listening to the first few episodes you have. Well, I'll tell you one of the things that I that really drove me to make this podcast, I wanted to do something that was a little bit different from some of the others that our brethren have produced that are all very good quality. I knew from the beginning, though, that what I wanted to do was to work through the Bible in an expository style. The reason we chose the name is because it 
describes what I always want the podcast to be. Uh, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse analysis of the scripture. I want to people to see what expository preaching sounds like when it is intentionally undenominational. Mm-hmm. And I advertise it this way, that we make a concerted effort to avoid dogmatic traditionalism, subjective mysticism, and cynical liberalism. So when I say dogmatic traditionalism, I mean the tendency to go along with an interpretation of a passage because of uh, the historic pressure to do so, even if the principles of sound hermeneutics are telling you to come to a different conclusion. Mm -hmm. Subjective mysticism would be uh, the approach that a lot of your radio and television preachers have, where uh, they talk about leadings of the spirit to a particular conclusion, and they don't worry for evidence or for articulating reasons behind an interpretation, but they just sort of uh, say, this is a strong impulse in my heart that this passage is speaking to me. Well, that's not the kind of approach that I'm going to take. Uh-huh. And then cynical liberalism is the the terrible and destructive approach to the skepticism, a healthy attitude of curiosity and a desire for proof and evidence, but a negativism toward the Bible, especially the supernatural aspects of the Bible, that causes people to uh, move away at all costs from things like inerrancy and to go down the wrong road when you encounter alleged uh, contradictions and so on. So I think that making a, a concerted effort to avoid those things makes our approach unique and meaningful enough to merit the production work. And I hope that people find it helpful. One thing I like about your approach in doing expository teaching is that you're never going to run out of material. You never have to wonder what's coming next. You can always be kind of foreplanning with that. And it'd be helpful on a congregational teaching level as well. I, I feel like personally, whenever I teach through a book, it's not till I'm done teaching through it that I feel qualified to start teaching on it. And if you were able to <laughs> teach at a congregational level first and work through some stuff to be able to teach through a second time would be really a neat opportunity to have. Well, that's essentially what I'm doing here. These are lessons that I have I've taught this at my home congregation. And I do want to say before we move on from this uh, section that you have encouraged in recent episodes of your show, Expository Preaching, I completely amen that. I want to reinforce that. Expository preaching is not what I did in the beginning of my career or for the majority of it. And honestly, it's taken me several years to really learn how to do it at all. At first, I took the chapter study approach and I was vague in my explanations of passages. I didn't put nearly enough preparation into it. And then I became overly tedious and it would be boring even to me while I was speaking it. I'm still by no means the best, uh, but I have become more comfortable with it. And a couple of things that I did to that end, I started listening to people who I found to be very good expository teachers. One of them for me was Jerry Dickinson. Now, if you listen to Jerry in meetings, He doesn't do a lot of expository teaching in meetings, but I held a meeting at Texarkana at the ILO congregation where Jerry works, and the brethren gave me a box of CDs of his 
teaching through the books of the Bible when he's home. That's pretty much all the teaching that he does. And it's exceptional. And so I just tried to emulate his approach. It was so natural. Nothing was rushed. Nothing was forced. I felt like I had a better concept of all the circles of context for every passage when it was finished. And I asked him for some advice. And the most helpful suggestion that he gave was that I should treat my approach each time like it would not be the only or last time I spoke on the text. So I don't have to say everything there is to say about it that time. And that was very helpful to me. I think that that cured me of my greatest weakness in the past uh, with this type of preaching. Mm -hmm. I struggle with expository preaching, keeping the big picture in view, while at the same time going into some of the depth that's there and, and giving sufficient voice to the passage itself and kind of walking that balancing beam. And I think that's good advice. Don't don't act like this is going to be the only time you're teaching from it. I appreciate that. And I appreciate the work that you're doing in encouraging expository teaching. I'll share just one quick story that came to mind. I went one time and I got to see Brother Linwood Smith's library at Brother Rick Martin's house. And in his collection of Linwood stuff, he had these binders, which were expository studies that Linwood had done. I'd never seen that material at all. I said, wow, this is this is amazing. Why don't you make this available? He says, well, Linwood wasn't very excited about this material because this wasn't his typical teaching style that people were used to. And I get that on one hand, but on the other hand, I would really enjoy getting to see what expository Linwood Smith looked like and sounded like. I think there could be great benefit to that as well. And I, th- I think there's kind of a, a second side to a lot of our preachers from expository standpoint that we don't hear because we only hear them in a meeting setting, which doesn't always lend towards expository teaching. Well, we've got you on the program today to talk about reading, which is the theme of our podcast here, books that help us to study, that we learn from, uh, what kind of gears us to study more. And so I want to talk to you about that some today. I want to start off by asking the question of, have you always liked to read? And the reason I ask that is because for a lot of my listeners, people I talk to, they didn't grow up just loving to read. They were like me. I hated reading growing up as a kid. And learning to like to read was a bit of a challenge. It was definitely like exercising. It's not something I wanted to do, but something I had to learn to do. And I'm always curious to ask people what your reading background was. Have you always been an avid reader or is it something that you kind of learned how to like? So I have always loved to read as long as I can remember being alive. I began reading on my own. Before that, my parents would read to me and I loved that. But I began reading on my own when I was five years old, and I uh, I read chapter books very early on. I've been an avid reader ever since. I, there's never been a year of my life since I first began reading that I didn't read several books. But I want to say that being an avid reader is not the same as being a disciplined reader. And I have only been a disciplined reader for the past few years. This is important because it's going to give some context to what we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, Until very recently, I read randomly. Literally, I would come into my office. I've had, for several years, I've had about 3,000 books or more in my office. And I would come in, I would take a book off the shelf at random. I didn't even necessarily pay attention to what it was. I just sort of would look at the shelf and pull a book off, and I would begin 
reading some part of it, not even necessarily at the beginning. And I would read a bit here and there and think about what I was reading. If I was going to use books in my study, I would treat virtually every book like a reference work. And so for some topical study I was doing at the moment, I would search for a relevant chapter or section in the table of contents or uh, from some recommendation. And I would read that passage or that chapter or paragraph. And that was my style. Mm -hmm. Our expository teaching has really changed my study habits. And it's made me, on the whole, more thoughtful about taking all books as they were written right. and trying to process the whole message of the book instead of just a chapter that seemed interesting. Uh, I will say that I still have the habit of skipping a chapter if I feel that I can see where it's going and I don't find it interesting or helpful. And I can say something more about that in a minute, but that's essentially the answer to your question. I've always liked to read, but an avid reader is not necessarily a disciplined reader. I've only been a disciplined reader for the past few years. As Dad's writing his commentary on the book of Revelation, one thing that I've harped on several times to him, I keep putting the bug in his ear, and I, I doubt it ever comes to fruition, but I probably won't stop regardless, is just to encourage him to write a very short, condensed version with his big picture view of the book. Because to your point, I don't think you or I are unique in being undisciplined in some of our reading. There are very few people who are going to pick up a commentary on Revelation, say, and read it from cover to cover and understand his whole. Uh, mindset, his background, where he's coming from, why he's taking the certain position that he is in, say, chapter six. And so not having that background, you're going to walk away with very a limited profit out of reading, say, his commentary. If he could write a very short, condensed, big picture view, people could at least have a background of where he's coming from. I think that's something to keep in mind in general that I wish we had more of in books. Um, typically, when we, we talk about writing commentaries from our brotherhood, it's a verse-by-verse -verse approach as opposed to giving big-picture views of books. Uh, I don't really remember much of a summary or a survey book being written by our brethren other than maybe James Wharton's Old Testament survey. And I think that's unfortunate because whereas I think people would read maybe an entire survey, they're less likely to read every word of a verse-by-verse -verse commentary. So I understand where you're coming from on that. I have a problem well, one of the, being disciplined in my reading as well sometimes. Well, one of the things that has caused me to you know, be more cautious about that is uh, <clears throat> I, I've written my own book about the Lord's Supper, and I get frustrated when people will read my book and they skip large portions of the book. They will skip uh, the section on history because their mindset is, well, I don't care about the history. That may be interesting to some people. I don't care about it. I just want to read the expositions of the texts. But the history is an important part of our overall analysis of the issue. And I think that a person who is ignorant of the history will likely have an ignorant interpretation of the text, but won't realize it. And so it was very troublesome to me. And I want to make sure that I don't do that to another writer. Sure. Now, I can sometimes uh, analyze, I think all of us can, that there might be a chapter in a book that is not especially relevant to the overall book. For example, in almost every work from the Restoration Movement, they would have a chapter on science in the Bible, usually one about geology 
almost all of those writers, uh, even the most conservative, believed in an old earth and several of the positions that correspond to that. And in those chapters, they would try to explain a harmony between uh, contemporary scientific theories in their day and the Bible. But when you've read one, you've read them all. And you'll wish that you hadn't read that one, really, when it's all said and done. The scientific theories are outdated anyway. Uh And even if they weren't outdated, uh, I wouldn't find much valuable in those presentations. So I skipped those portions. And I feel bad for people if I recommend a book to them and they slog through that chapter. Because um, I think it's a serious waste of time, even if you enjoy reading. So there are times I still, even in my more disciplined stage, will bypass a section of the book if I think that I can do it without damaging my appreciation of the book as a whole. Uh, Just this past week, I'm taking a group of guys through a study of the book of Deuteronomy. And the particular book that we're reading, we read the introduction, which was about 60 pages. And in the midst of it, probably the middle half of that introduction was about the documentary hypothesis. And the writer was opposed to the documentary hypothesis. So I wasn't worried about that. But most of it was not practical in any sense. It was way over most of the reader's heads. And I realized that after I had given the assignment and when everybody got together to discuss, they were kind of complaining about some of the content of that, which I understood. And I said, look, that's fine. If you didn't read it all, that's fine. You're not going to get flunked out of the class for having done that or anything. But on the positive side, it did teach you some discipline in your reading. And I do think every once in a while, I have to challenge myself to do that. Though I may not enjoy what I'm reading, just do it for the sake of doing it and getting through the material to be fair to the author or just to make myself sit there and and discipline myself mentally. That's good advice. So you've always liked to read, but when was the first time you started reading religious books? Well, I was not five years old. (laughs) I think that I first began reading religious books when I was about 15. Okay. The first religious book that I remember reading all the way through was Fred Kerbo's sermon book, Christ, the Man of Sorrows. And I read that because Fred Kerbo was one of the men who was integral in converting my grandfather out of Mormonism. And so he was highly spoken of in our family, in our household. My father had a copy of that sermon book. And at that point, I was starting to think seriously about preaching. And so I read the the sermons of this hero who had helped lead our family, at least uh, my grandfather, into the faith. And that was where I began. I think the second book that I read, religious book, all the way through, was the book by Harry Reamer, Inspiration Plus Revelation Equals the Bible. And I was probably the same age. I don't know who it was who recommended that to me. It may have been Ron Corder. It may have been Ronnie Wade, one of those older preachers with whom I was spending a lot of time and asking a lot of questions. But those would have been the earliest books, and they were pretty easy to read. I was able to work through them as a 15-year-old, and I still remember things that I learned uh, when I read them. Okay, so we we know already from your recommendation as a 15-year-old that you liked Reamer on inspiration, that you have a different reading level than the average person. <laughs> but uh, good books, good good recommendations. Um, I, I don't think I read that when I was 15. The uh, first book I ever remember reading was uh, John Ankerberg and John Weldon's book, Darwin's Leap of Faith. 
And I had to read that because dad required that we read it in school one year as part of our science instruction. And I actually kind of enjoyed that. I didn't look forward to it when we started, but I wish we'd had more reading assignments such as that going through high school. And I think that's something that parents should consider doing is I think a lot of kids, young people would enjoy learning more about the Bible, but they just kind of need to be led into it, so to speak. Well, that was part of the difficulty I had. I was homeschooled and I read good books in my homeschooling. But when I traveled and studied with older preachers, I was not assigned to read books. I think they saw that I read books. I mean, when, when we would drive, uh, I would be sitting over there if they didn't want to talk to me for a little while. Then I would sort of that read one of my books, you know. And I don't know that they paid attention to the fact I was just sort of flipping through the pages and reading here and reading there. But I, I've always had a good memory. And so I could read a little portion here and a little portion there. and I could process what the man was saying, and I could regurgitate it and even quote the book. And I think that gave some people, when I was a younger person, the impression that I'd read the whole book, mm-hmm. which I really hadn't read the whole book. I'd read portions of it. Mm-hmm. And so maybe, maybe the older preachers who were working with me, they thought I was more disciplined than I really was. But I always in my heart wished not only that they could tell me what book to read, but that we could have read it together. Mm-hmm. I would have loved to have worked through some of these books with one of these brethren who could have helped me whenever I ran into something and I thought, well, what do I make of this? You know, is this good? Is this bad? And I, I want to tell you and those who are listening, I really appreciate you, brother, for doing this with so many people in the church. You are helping uh, perhaps more than anyone I've ever known to create a culture of biblical literacy and studiousness in the church. You're helping to elevate the the people in the pew out there, not just teachers, but the people in the pew to a higher level of expectation in biblical teaching. Uh, And you're doing it very responsibly by working through books with people, especially young people, and helping them to identify the chicken and to avoid the bones, as you uh, say, and as we've heard, for many, many years. So I want to commend you on that and say, when I was a young teenager, especially, oh, I would have given my right arm for someone to do that for me. Fortunately, by the grace of God, I had friends who kept me, I suppose, from going off into goofy ideas at times if I had some, but it was, I took a hard and bumpy road to get where I am. And I'm very grateful for people like you helping make that road smoother for the generation that's walking behind us and for people that are older than us, too. I know you work with a lot of people uh, from a a lot of different uh, age demographics who are interested in becoming Bible students. So I just wanted to to say that for the benefit of your listening audience. I know you won't say that of yourself, but from my heart, that's what I believe. I appreciate that. One of the things I've appreciated most in life is the influence that my father and brother Alan Bonifay have had because they've always been there in the the background, if you will, as a sounding board. I could call them anytime. I can ask them questions about what I'm reading or what I'm about to read. Give me some heads up of things I should be aware of and look for. So where he might, this guy might be off in this area, or what, what do they think of this? Because I haven't heard, there's a lot of things I read I've never heard of before, and yet they typically have. And so I've had a, a unique experience 
coming from that type of a background. And I think that's one of the things that hinders people, a lot of people from reading is just having someone to help keep them motivated to read and to be kind of a safety net around them as they work through materials. And so I think that's a really important thing for, for brethren to do. And I enjoy getting the opportunity to introduce people to books and stuff. What would your favorite genre of religious books be? I know everybody has a different favorite. Mine's, I'm sure mine's going to be different than yours, but what's yours? So this was the toughest question for me. I thought about it for a long time, and I really cannot answer. I've tried. I, I thought, surely I can come up with something. But I, I have to say it this way. I enjoy all kinds of books. And any book that can help strengthen my faith in God and in the Word of God, or can help me have a clear understanding of a passage or a phrase in the Bible, or of the gospel as a whole, which by that I would mean the big picture of the Bible, I believe that is the gospel, I feel like it was a worthwhile read. But I can't really say that I have a favorite genre. I, I usually, at this point in my life, I'm reading five to ten books at a time. Uh-huh. And they're going to be eclectic in their genres. Uh-huh. Uh, these days, they'll all be semi-related, and they'll be bound together by some connection to a section of the Bible I'm working through in the moment. But if you ask me, well, which one, you know, do you like the the one like on biblical theology better than the one that's a topical study of some subject over here? Well, I don't know that if, if when I answer that, it won't really have to do with the genre as much as the particular book. So it's just kind of the way my mind works. I I couldn't put my finger on that. Maybe one day I could, but at this point, I just couldn't nail that down. That's fair. When when I've thought of you, maybe this is not a fair assumption or a concept, but when I've thought of you, I've always thought of you enjoying some of the older writers more. Um, For instance, I've I've always heard you quote uh, Campbell and McGarvey and a bunch of older restoration preachers who I respect. I like reading McGarvey. I don't mind reading Lard. I have a really difficult time reading Campbell, like extremely difficult to the point where I just don't do it much. I read people who have read Campbell, and I've I've always assumed that you had a more of a taste for that style of writing than what I have. Is that a fair analysis, or so that this is kind of tough? Because if I can understand what they're saying, I love what I get from old writers. Oh. I do. In fact, I love what I get from old writers generally more than I do from new writers. That's true. David Griffin, several years ago, read through Campbell's Christian Baptist, the entire paper. And I was blown away. And I asked him, how did you do it? He said, well, I read 20 minutes a day. And as days progressed, I cleared more ground in 20 minutes. Now, you, Nathan, have known me since I was a teenager or younger. And you know, as maybe some of our listeners won't know, that I have never been an athletically inclined person. And I've always struggled more than you or any of most of our peers and friends with athletics and exercise. I was always looking, I've tried a few times over the years, but I was always looking for an easy way. What's the easy way to get physically fit, strong, and keep your weight down and stay in good shape? And those who really understood physiology would say, well, there isn't one. It's going to take work every time. If you, if you want to be really good, it's going to take hard work. 
And that's the attitude that I have about this. It's not easy for me. Uh, sometimes I develop weird ways of making it easier. So I've been reading through Walter Scott's book, The Gospel Restored. Okay. And Walter Scott, he had a Scottish background. And so I read it out loud. If I read it in my mind, I, I just can't do it. But I read it out loud and I kind of give him a weird accent, like my, my fake Scottish accent while I read it. And somehow that helps me to process it a little bit better. Now, I'm not, not everybody has to do that. I, you know, some people might think that's yeah. goofy, but yeah. it helps me. Yeah. I do want to say something about that, that you, your last episode on biblical theology was an excellent episode. You, you mentioned that you did it at my request. As you know, and as you stated, a lot of the current biblical theologies are being written by Presbyterian and Reformed writers. And I want to encourage our brethren, as you go to that material for its scholarly value, make time to also read some of the old restoration stuff. I'll mention that in my, my number one books, my top books, but a book that is, it's not easy, but I think people need to work through it. If you can't do it by yourself, work through it with someone else, is the Campbell-Rice debate mm -hmm. in which Alexander Campbell explored the fundamental differences between Rothian and the restoration approach to New Testament Christianity. And uh, covenant theology is explored in that debate, and the differences between covenant theology and the theology of the Restoration Movement are articulated. Alexander Campbell has a, a special study at the end of his debate with Walker, I believe it is, the Campbell-Walker debate, the little kind of a teal-green reprint by Old Paths Book Club, and it's all about covenant theology. Now, I don't completely agree with Campbell's view of the covenants either, but we're talking about a man who had a classical education in Reformed Presbyterian doctrine, who worked his way out of it, and had a marvelous insight and perspective. And so, I guess my recommendation would be, as you read two new books, throw in an old book for the third. It's going to be difficult, but we want to be good, we, we want to be excellent the best thinkers in religion that we can be, then we have to do the hard exercises too. Incidentally, for our listeners, I'm exercising now, physically. <laughs> I do it every day. And I'm, I'm doing some grueling and intense exercises and I'm feeling good and I'm losing weight and I'm building muscle. But if I, if I made the decision, I'm only gonna do the easy ones and I'm gonna skip mm -hmm. the hard ones because I just don't like them, then I don't think I would improve. Yeah. So I want to encourage all of our Bible students, uh, don't skip the hard stuff. Do what you have to do. Figure out the way. I have to have a partner exercise with me. I've got like five people across the country who are doing these exercises with me. We hold each other accountable. I've got to have that. And maybe we need that in our, our Bible studies too. But do what you do to work through the tough material. I definitely think you have to have a reading partner to get through some, some of the more difficult books. One of the things I've encouraged listeners to do is to not jump straight into a Campbell-Rice debate, for instance, pick up some guys who are easier, like a McGarvey, read McGarvey first, and kind of work your way up. I think that's one of the things that discouraged me early on of reading some of the older Restoration books, like the Campbell-Rice debate was recommended, or some of the Christian Baptist was recommended, was going from not reading at all to reading the Christian Baptist is like walking to the gym the first day and trying to squat 300 pounds and bench press 250 
and you're never going to be able to keep up with that regimen if you can lift it at all. And so you get discouraged and you quit going to the gym like most people do. That's unfortunate. And so maybe think of kind of some some books from a restoration background. I know you have a, a large background in that. That would be good incremental steps of building up a well-rounded diet or workout regimen for people. I think that would be very helpful. I think that's probably the number one area where people struggle in reading restoration background books. I have some, and I'll mention some in my top 10, actually. But I will say, when you need help, David Griffin's Restoration Audiobooks is an excellent resource. Because some of these books, they're hard to read. They're written in an old style with words that we don't use. And sentences are long, joined by semicolons. Sometimes they take up two pages, one sentence. David is such an exceptional reader. And his inflection will help to communicate the meaning when we might get lost on the page if we tried to read it by ourselves. So David hasn't done, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of books, but the books he has done are helpful. And I would recommend people avail themselves of them. And I happen to know that David and another brother are starting to do some of the old debates. And I think they're going to do the Campbell Rice debate in an audio book. That'll be helpful. I think that, you know, when when we talk about writing, our brethren writing, one thing that would be valuable, no one has really done this in the past, unfortunately. One thing that would be valuable would be for someone who can handle the Campbell-Rice debate to boil down the essentials of what it says and to re-communicate that in contemporary English. I think that would be a valuable project for Maybe there's someone listening who wants to write a book and they've got the the gift. Uh, That would be something I think would be tremendously beneficial. People would buy it and it would be valuable uh, to the church. While we're talking Campbell Rice debate, it made me think a while back I took a group of guys through a reading of the Oliphant Rice debate. Different rice, but... Different rice, yeah. That was one of the first debates most of those guys had ever read, and it was really enjoyable, and it made for a really good discussion to sit around where you could note out all the arguments that are being made, and then when you read the rebuttal to see did they answer the arguments or which ones did they deal with, and to see that back and forth process going on. I think, one, the art of debating is lost, but two, just the interest of seeing a position held or upheld or defeated has been lost as well. There's not People don't want to do that type of mental gymnastics as they do their reading. That's unfortunate. Debates are a unique genre, but they're an important genre that we need to learn to appreciate and utilize in our material better. That really helps develop critical thinking. Yes, and I would recommend Zondervan's Counterpoint series. If you're looking for things that are written in the modern style, sometimes debates, especially live debates, can be hard to follow because arguments would uh, break out or some sort of distraction would take place. What had so much potential was the Campbell-Owen debate. So much potential for a brilliant man like Alexander Campbell to uh, meet the chief representative of atheism in America. But Robert Owen did not respond to any of Campbell's arguments. He, he read uh, prepared speeches that had nothing to do with the proposition at hand. And so Campbell's criticisms of that, they eat up a lot of time. It makes that a much more difficult debate than it should have been to read. 
But Zondervan's Counterpoint series is a lot more digestible where you've got an article and you've got maybe uh, three response rebuttal articles at the end. There's a lot of good ones out there too. You may not agree with any of the positions, uh -huh. but at the end, you've been challenged in your thinking. And uh, I find them to be very helpful to read. I like, I enjoy them and have collected almost the complete set. I enjoy reading through books where the guy is interacting with another fellow's position, but he notates the other fellow's position in his footnotes. And you can read both sides of the discussion, or you can understand the critique that's taking place. And to get to see critiques done in a, I wouldn't say friendly necessary, but in a nice cordial manner where, you know, it's welcomed. And people's hearts aren't on their sleeves. They're open to constructive criticism or just criticism in general to sharpen their point of focus or their how they're discussing the intricate nature of the, the topic. And I think that's something that we lack a little bit of today, that the debate realm used to be our way of articulating positions, but we've gotten away from the realm of debate. And so we don't have much of a realm for disagreement or articulating positions in a cordial manner. And I can appreciate that in and Bible writers who are doing that and willing to, to have that critique made of, of their writings. Yeah, certainly. All right, we're going to take a break now and ask that our listening audience join us again next week as we continue this conversation and begin to look at some of Brother Clint DeFrance's top recommendations. Thank you for joining us this week, and be sure to check in next week as we continue this discussion. God bless and have a great day. Praise is yours alone, you're worthy, worthy of all. Our God is ever almighty, he's ever almighty to save. Our God is ever almighty, he's ever almighty always. Our God is ever almighty, he's ever almighty to save.